0: Uh, it's a podcast for a uh, Monday, the uh, first Monday in the uh, month of November. Yours truly, Bob McCown, John Shannon, up there in the top corner. And uh, joining us, well, he needs no introduction, but I'll give him one anyway.
1: No, uh, don't don't introduce him then.
0: No? No, just say. Well, but there are people
1: that are listening. Well, they'll,
0: as soon as they hear him talk, they'll know who he is. Yeah, he, everybody knows who he is. All right, but I was going to introduce him with, by, by talking about his, his, uh, his book that he scribbled. It doesn't come with crayons, does it, your book?
2: Well, this will be the first book you ever buy that doesn't come with crayons.
0: Well, no, you're making the assumption, Burke, that I'm actually going to buy this thing. Well, I'm used Bri- to Brian's, Brian's not giving any away. I haven't received my yeah, copy yet. Brian's
1: not giving any away.
2: That's so. how this works when you write a book. People buy it. That's how, that's how you make money off the book.
1: Yeah, that's other people. No, it's Don't not people. To to... It's
2: other people
0: buy it, and your friends you look after.
2: Don't be afraid to go to Indigo or Chapters and buy
0: it. <laughs> uh, but it would be a, set a dangerous precedent, Brian. <laughs> Very dangerous. Oh, uh, so I see you. Uh, you kind of stole um, the uh, the title of the book. It's called Burke's Law, and then a bunch of babble after that. You know that the one book that I penned was called McCowan's Law. I just I actually happen to have a copy of it right here so you can see. So with what brilliance did you come up with the title? I'm curious.
2: The difference between the two books is that mine is a bestseller, but Burke's Law was a television show in the '60s. Look,
0: look at the bottom: National bestseller.
2: They could put that on anything. You now mine was in the Globe and Mail as a bestseller.
0: Well, I, got, I hate to tell you, but so was mine. Now stop. Anyway, oh, you guys, please.
2: First listen. of tell it was a TV show in the 60s.
0: I vaguely remember it. Uh, about a
1: lawyer's show, wasn't it? Uh, yep. Yeah, you don't even executive. know, do you? Do you remember who the star was? No. Oh, do you, John? I, I, actually, I used to. His first name is Gene. That's all I remember. So, Gene? Yep. Well, that's very insightful. Thank you for that. Well, you know, I had to get into this conversation somehow, so between you guys patting each other on the back about your national bestsellers. No, 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 no. So, <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> did you like – this
0: is your first book, right? So did you like the process of of doing the book?
2: Yeah, I mean, Stephen Brunt wrote the book, and he, right. he polished up, I mean, what would have been a, a terrible read. I think the stories are interesting. I mean, it's 30 years – in the business on um, team side, league side. Uh, I wanted people to feel like they were in my office or on the draft floor. And I think Stephen accomplished that. Um, I think people, it's like I said, in the, in the, the conclusion of the book, I, I want people to enjoy the book. I don't care if they have a different view of me when they're done, but I want them to enjoy the book. They're, it's kind of like a Forrest Gump book where a lot of the stuff that happened in my career, I was right there when it happened. McSorley, Bashir, Bertuzzi, Moore—you know, CBAs, so all the collective bargaining agreements. So, I think, uh, I think people—I mean, the feedback's been excellent. People enjoy it.
0: Good, John. The, 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 the one, question, the one.
2: Bob, to answer your question, did I enjoy the process? Yeah, it makes you look back, makes you reflect on. I'm thinking, would I have done things differently? Should I have done things differently? And answer is yes. So I think it was useful. The
1: the uh, by the way, the guy's name was Gene Barry, who was the star of *Burke's Law*. Um, the the one thing um, that I think a lot of people forget, Brian, in your world was that you start you really started in the hockey world as an agent, um, and uh, you were you were a precursor to a ton of people that started as agents and ended up becoming managers. And you were a little ahead of the curve on that.
2: Yeah. You know what? In baseball in particular, I think like half a dozen guys have started in the agent business and been successful and crossed over. Uh, On our side, I think the first guy, John, to be truthful, I think it was Dean Lombardi. He had worked for, he had worked for Art Kaminsky and then, he made the jump with San Jose right or Minnesota right before he I had hit. a bit
1: of help. He had a bit of help from his father-in-law though.
2: Who's his father-in-law? Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Bob
1: Pulford. Bob Pulford. Yes.
2: Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, I, I think the uh, Pete, Pete Chiarelli worked in the agent business and then moved over a, a bunch of guys did. I think it gives you a real solid background and how the industry works and who the people are and, like, when I, when I switched over to the team side, I knew everybody. There was right. no acclimation period. I knew every assistant GM, every GM, all the scouts, everybody. So there was no period to acclimatize to it at all.
0: How would you categorize the relationship, in, in a general sense, between a front office NHL guy, a GM, or even assistant GM, and an agent? Is there a lot of dislike, distrust, animosity, or not?
2: Yeah, there is. I, I think the GM, the, the, like Harry Sinden and I, Harry hated my guts because we fought on a couple of players, and, and I remember I was hunting with him, and as only Harry Sinden could say, he said, you know, it took me a long time to like you, but I do. <laughs> that was his, as a compliment of sorts, I guess. Um, I think the one thing, if you go back to – GMs who were active when I was an agent, like Lou Nanny, Cliff Fletcher, Bill Torrey who's passed away. The guys that were active when I represented players, the one thing they liked about me was, I was really hard on my players, as far as playing hard, being professional, working hard. I was harder on my players than the team teams were actually. So if a guy had a bad game and he came out, I would just give it to him, say, you you're going to, you know, I remember Gates Orlando, a wonderful guy. I saw him one night play in Rochester in the American League, and he came out and he knew he had a bad game. And he said, I know, I know. I said, You might as well buy a McDonald's here in, in Rochester. You're going to die here. You're going to retire here. Or you're going to die here. If that's all the better you can play, you are never going to play in the NHL. And I think the, the, the hardest. That I was hard on them like that.
1: And, and part of the aspect of that was that you had to recruit players you had to go and convince them i think that you could you had their best interests in mind it was a little different than when you were a manager when you actually drafted players or traded for players but you had to go and convince players that you had their best interest in mind
2: yeah and i i didn't recruit john but you're right when so coaches would ask me 90 percent of players i got their college coach asked me to talk to them so, like, I had never met Brett Hall when his mom called me. When Joanne Robinson called me, I'd never met Brett Hall. I'd never met uh, Tom Curvers till Mike Sturridge, who was the coach at Duluth, called me. But then I would go in and I'd make the pitch and say, "Here's how we do it: budgets. You have to work hard. You have to dress a certain way, uh, and and you have to buy into a system where you save money. You only spend so much on a car, and so." If a player came with me, he was buying into a lifestyle and a commitment that most agents didn't have. I don't think it would work today. I think guys would tell you to get lost.
0: Um, let me just circle back very quickly to um, my point, if I had one. And that is, you know, making that move from being an agent into an NHL front office because of the potential animosity that it – that may have existed when you were an agent. What difficulties did that manifest once you moved to the other side, if any?
2: Well, I'll tell you, Bob, the difficulty, the number one problem was you were perceived, and and John will remember this, you were perceived as jumping the queue. (laughs) So these guys, all these former players that were trying to become assistant GMs and got teammates of guys. Yeah. So, like, Harry Sinden was a great minor league player. He, he would have teammates that would want to come with him, and he's the GM of the Boston Bruins, and they'd be, Harry, I played with you back in 1960. We were in uh, St. Paul together. Uh, I need a job. I want to work. And, and that was the biggest thing was when Pat Quinn hired me, there was great resentment among guys who had been working in the scouting department or or the pro scouting or amateur scouting, and now this American pole vaults over them and becomes the assistant GM of the Vancouver Canucks. That was the biggest resentment. I remember we played in St. Louis my first year, and I I faxed ahead. Remember remember the fax machine was? We all did. People watch you laugh, my kids laugh. I still have, I'll show you mine, I have a fax machine here. I still use it, my son says, Dad, do you have a page or two? And I'm like, okay. I remember I went to St. Louis, No, and I had faxed ahead that I'd be at the game. We weren't playing there. It was Chicago was playing there, somebody. So I'd sent Ron Caron was the jam. I'd sent a note, I'll be at the game, please leave a press pass. I get to the press gate, no press pass. So I wait 10 minutes, I call Susie Matthew, who you both all remember Susie Matthew, wonderful lady. She doesn't respond. Then she walks by me and I yell at Susie, where's my press pass? And she ignored me. And it was clear. Ron Caron had said, I'm not letting this guy in the building. So then I just, I said to the security guard, I'm going up on the elevator. You can arrest me if you want. I wanted to make a scene and they want to drag me out of the press box, drag me out of the press box. But I went up and sat there. That happened three times that year. Wow. We're the DM would not leave it. They resented the fact that I had jumped over some of their buddies. That was the biggest resentment, not that I was an agent.
1: Just a minute. You, you, you said, I want to make a scene, because that was the only time in your career you ever made a scene.
2: That was the only time... <laughs> <laughs> I've tried to I've tried to be a kind of get along with everybody. Type oh.
1: <laughs> oh, what a what a pile oh. of crap. Hey, that is. We we went Brian and I went 8 months without speaking to each other at one point. 8 months and it was a single phone call. It was a single phone call and he at the end of it he said lose my number. And it was 8 months later and the good news was it was over a beer, which settled, seems to settle everything with Brian, and then we were okay. But it was eight months because he didn't like the question I asked.
0: You got nothing on me. I think it was uh, three or four years between um, <laughs> conversations with Burke and I. Uh, I don't even know if you remember it. You came. I was doing the business of sports at TSN, and you came in studio and sat with me, and I have no idea what pissed you off. It's shocking to me. That it I didn't matter. I didn't make anybody it mad. didn't
1: matter. what. It, <laughs>
2: It
0: doesn't sound like me. <laughs> well, it sounds exactly like you, and it was you. And some floor guy came rushing up to step between us because you, you took a step towards me. I don't know what you were going to do, but you were, you were madder oh. than hell. Oh. And, but uh, fortunately, you have a, you're, you're, clearly, you've been concussed a few times, and your memory isn't too good. So you didn't hold it against me for all that long, three or four years.
2: There are, the capacity of people in the media to ask stupid questions is unlimited.
0: well now that you're in the media, you understand how that works, right I do yeah well, so let me ask you about that um, John and I, John, I know can tell you way more stories than I can, but I can list quite a few guys that have come from playing careers or more specifically from being coaches, general managers, front office executives and got into the media, and I've had the same message for them when they've asked uh, on regular occasions, and that basically is, do not use this platform to try and get your next job in as a coach, as a manager, as a whatever. Um,
1: Use it to tell the truth. Tell us what well, you believe. But hold on, though. You can't do that. You can't do that if you want to go back in. I mean, because you, if you well, if you told gotta... the truth, you'll never get back in. Well, okay. If you told but... the truth, you'll never get back in. Right, Brian? Yeah. I... Yeah. Well, maybe. But I
0: don't, I, you know, I, my opinion has always been if you get into this side of the business, you better give up the other side of the business. If you go back in, you know, if you guys do, um, fine. Good for you but it's going to inhibit the way you react on camera, on screen, on the air. Sure. But I will say this, and it's actually a compliment for Brian, is um, we've never had that conversation. It wouldn't even occur to me to have that conversation. Brian Burke is basically the same on the air as a broadcaster as he was as being on the other side of the mic. And, the, and, and that's, it's a compliment because there are very, very few of those, Berkey.
2: Yeah, so thank you, Bob. But so, you know, John, I think you're right. I think someone who, who does this job, works in the media, with an eye toward getting back to a team side is going to be pretty vanilla because you can't yeah. say what you think. So my, my view is very simple. First off, I do not plan on going back to a team. The only job I would consider outside of broadcasting is I really enjoyed working for Gary Bettman. So if there were a league position open at some point, that would interest me in Toronto, not anywhere else. But I don't think that's going to happen because I've been very critical of the National Hockey League since I took this job. I love the National Hockey League, but there's certain aspects I think they've gotten wrong, and I thump them for it. So to me, if I'm trying to get a job back in hockey, I've picked a pretty funny way to do it because I've been very difficult very hard on the teams, on the draft lottery, things I don't like. And I've called out the mistakes that I think the teams have made in real time. The thing I think – there's two things. I think it's cowardly. If you want to get back with a team and then all you do is suck up to the different executives and say, oh, this was a great move, this was a great move, I won't do that. That's number one. Number two, I call it out in real time. I think it's really easy in the media – to be right about something. and say, okay, William Nylander's contract is a problem. I said it that day. I said they just gave their fourth best player $7 million a year. They're Now they have to overpay Matthews and Marner. Called it in real time. That was 18 months ago. Now people say, oh, too much money tied up in the top four. I called that out in real time. And that's where I think you get in trouble with teams. If you want to go work for a team and you're going to be critical of what they do, good luck. And I'm going to be careful.
1: But wait, so, but with with your with the resume that you have in the business, and the fact that you were a manager of uh, a few clubs, and you you you, you live you live in, in uh, you know you live in a, a hockey hotbed. Uh, how do you not sit there and think I could do a better job than these guys? Because because I mean, any of us that have had really high profile jobs. And we get fired or we move on. And then 10 years later, you see something f- fail at that place. You think, I could do a better job. How do you not let that stand in the way?
2: Because you got to get behind the wheel to do it. I don't want to get behind the wheel. Like, what I don't miss, I miss being around the guys. I miss being around the players. I, was, I, I had a couple beers with a player the other night. And I said, I miss this part. I do miss this part.
1: Do you miss winning? Do you miss winning?
2: Yeah. But, but the lifestyle change I've made is I, sleep, I slept in my own bed last night. Yeah. And I'm going to sleep there again tonight and tomorrow night. I've gotten rid of the travel, which was a major, major part of my life. And frankly, I would commit a felony to get on a plane right now, but I don't miss constant travel. I, I don't want the lifestyle. I don't want the aggravation. I'm sick of arguing with rich people. I don't, I don't want the aggravation. Like I like the people I work for a- at Sportsnet. My bosses, I think, are constructive and helpful. and So I like the direction I get. I like the people I work with. So to me, it's a lifestyle thing. So, yeah, do I think I could do it better? Yeah, of course I do with, with lots of teams. But I think the key is if you want to be in broadcasting, there's two ways to do it in my view one is you make deals with people okay i'll get information but i'll leave you alone if you give me information i i don't make deals so i'm going to say what i think if you don't mm. talk to me for six months that's fine but i'm going to give my unvarnished honest opinion every time i'm asked and that you make enemies that way
1: was, was that always your goal i mean after uh after you thought you would be done as a manager you said well i'm just going to go into broadcasting did you know yes. you were going to yep so so my deal
2: so 2018 february 2018 my my last year with calgary and the late great ken king and i had made a deal that i would come to calgary at the end of each season we'd analyze it if i wasn't happy i could leave if they weren't happy they could tell me to leave and he came into my office in february and said we think we're good brad true is clearly ready to to operate this job no trading wheels needed we're good I said, I'd like to stay because I really loved Calgary. I loved working there. I loved living there. I said, I prefer to stay, but okay. So that's when I started figuring, okay, what's plan B?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And you, you know, in our business, as long as you've got time left on your contract, you don't worry about plan B. So plan B now, it's February. I know I'm done in April or wherever we're done plan So I started the outline for my book and then I said, okay, what do I want to do? There's only two jobs I want to do. I do not want to work for another team. I've had enough of the travel. I'm 65 years old now, so I'm 63 then. Not going back to a team. Plus, I worked on the West Coast a bunch of times. Like, think of this. Just bang your head, right? Where's the worst place to live if you're working in pro sports? West Coast. I worked in Vancouver twice. I worked in Anaheim. Worked in Calgary. So, every league meeting, every GM meeting, you're flying east, not just with your team. See, my kids flying east. So, I said, I'm done. Write the book, and then I'm gonna either work for the league or work in broadcasting. The league said we have no interest. So, I, I talked to a couple different broadcast partners, and Sportsnet offered me a job, and I, I like the job. I think I'm good at it. I'm working hard, I'm getting better at it, I think. But I, I, I like the lifestyle just as much.
0: With Brian Burke, you said earlier, um, well, you, you spoke of your fondness for Gary Bettman. Um, obviously, all three of us know Mr. Bettman to some extent. John worked for him as well. Um, I've had my share of disagreements with, with Gary, as I think most of us have from time to time. But I'm intrigued by your fondness for him and your willingness to go back and work for him again, should the right opportunity arise. What's that based on?
2: Well, I, I think people in Canada well, clearly don't understand Gary, but they dislike him and it was, it started early as you know, this American taking over our game in Canada and then yeah. it, it's, it's gone on since then a basketball guy. He was a basketball guy and it, and it frustrates me because. First off, I love the guy, like, I I love the man. He's a brilliant guy, he's a good guy, good family guy. But I think he's single-handedly responsible for where the league has come from when I first got involved, which was, and John, you were involved then too. It was a mom and pop business back when I got involved. I remember the end of my first year in Vancouver, we had a meeting to see if we should raise the lower bowl ticket prices from 26 to $27 for the, the best seats in the house. And I remember like, like honestly, I remember fighting with Richie Sutter and pay, I overpaid him. Like we budgeted 190,000 for his contract. He represented himself. So I gave him 195 and Pat was furious at me. Pat was like, we budgeted 190 for him. He gave him 195. I said, he's Richie Sutter. I had, I had to pay him. He was representing <laughs> himself, great kid. So that time, well, it was a mom and pop business to where it is now. And right now we're in a pandemic and the business is in the sewer. Right. But the fact is Gary grew this game, solidified ownership, got the CBA we needed, got the TV deals we needed. He's brilliant. He's done a fantastic job. The one good thing about this pandemic, and there's very little good about this pandemic, one good thing is I think people have realized now in Canada what Gary's leadership is worth to award a Stanley cup, to do the bubbles. And this has been a, a, this is a David Copperfield thing. This has been magic what he's done. And now the test will be, can we continue this forward? But he's a brilliant guy. He's a great guy. I love the guy.
0: Is he a listener?
2: <laughs> oh yeah. he
0: take counsel? Yep. Yeah.
2: From smart people, not from you.
0: I didn't suggest anything the, for me.
1: The, the interesting thing, and bite just, me by the way, Burke. The, the interesting thing about Gary that from, from my observations I I am absolutely and I, I it took me to work there to understand it. I, I'm amazed of the loyalty of that senior management group to Gary. It is something you do not see everywhere. Uh, and and that to me is is absolutely um uh, fascinating of, of somebody's business style yeah the I, other yeah. The, the, the the other thing in 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 all of this is i have been in i haven't been in as many meetings as brian but i don't think i've ever been in a meeting with gary that if he asked a question he didn't know the answer to already he already knew the answer it, it was part of a test uh to make sure that we were on the same page uh, and, and that to me, uh, that to me is, is something that, uh, will, uh, is always a, a big part of, of what makes him so successful. I, I still remember the one board of governors meeting I sat in, Brian, I'm not sure if you were there, but we had a small group off to the side at one point and Jeremy Jacobs, uh, was was in our group and we were sitting there talking and and he turned and pointed and pointed you know thirty feet across the hall to uh, across the room to Gary and he said by the way boys that's the smartest guy in the room let's make let's make that perfectly clear he's the smartest guy in the room and we're just here.
2: Well, when I was at Harvard Law School, I had a professor named Stephen Breyer, who's now on the Supreme Court. And and Justice Breyer was my antitrust professor. And he actually, we had a winter term course for antitrust and we had, we call it the marathon. He was appointed to a judgeship. And so we had to go seven days a week for 14 days to finish this course. And so we call it the marathon. So I had a Supreme court justice as a professor. I think Gary's smarter than he is. Like we, we used to say at the league, they're smart and there's Bettman smart we'd be in collective bargaining and gary would be running out ahead of me and, and bob good now boy this is in my book i'd say to gary you gotta slow down you're going too fast you're losing good now and you lost me i wasn't making fun of bob good now you lost me like he's making these legal arguments and i'm like i can't keep up he's a brilliant guy and when you have the kind of loyalty where a people stay in those jobs and be worship the guy, that's leadership. That that's a that's not you can't manufacture that you can't buy that. That the, those people in the room swear by this guy and will follow him, It's like the Pied Piper of Hamlin, right? We would all follow this guy anywhere. If Gary mm-hmm. called right now and said I need you to be in New York in two hours, I'd say see you guys. I got to go to New York. So that's leadership. That he's a great leader. He's taken our league from real humble, modest origins to where we are now. It's all him.
0: You have um, reached an age, and um, we're all three in the same kind of general... Oh, you guys
1: are much older than me. You guys are much older than me. Shut up, Shannon. Um, where you... you, you if I'm, well, I don't know
0: what you want. Do you? you you've told us about... You like the job you're doing now. You would consider going back to the NHL in the right situation, but you don't want to go back to a team. Does retirement enter the picture for you, or would you go out of your mind? Do you think if you weren't, didn't have somewhere to go every every day?
2: Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. Retirement to me is the day. A day will come when someone will not pay me to work. Right. And then I'll go full time to one of my charities. I can't, I can't sit on a beach. I don't golf. Inactivity has no appeal to me. So no, I can't fathom retirement. I remember when my dad retired and he was so excited and I was like, I can't imagine that. So no retirement last resort.
0: Another book. Um, Look, I've had calls periodically. Um, I know it's a little soon for you to even contemplate that. Or have you? Now that the the book is out, you've had some success with it, could you see yourself doing another one?
2: Uh, Maybe. I'll, I'll tell you why I hesitate is, I'm sour about some of the stuff that I, I forgot, like when you do a book, uh-huh. you have to leave out a lot of stuff. And Stephen Brunt, who was, did a brilliant job writing the book with me, he he called some stuff. He said, we're going to leave that out. We, we Target was 300 pages and we were worried about being too long, being too short. Um, there's some stuff that I wish had been in the first book. And there's all the stuff you forget, you know, like, sure. Someone told me, Ned Colletti told me, he said, you're gonna forget five really important people when you write your book. And I'm like, there's no way I'll forget anyone important to me in my book. Well, I left out Dave and I mentioned him once. Dear friend of mine, was a client of mine, worked for me with the Leafs. We've been friends for 40 years. I mentioned him once in the book. Dana Sinclair was my sports psychologist, went with me 15 years with different mm-hmm. teams. Never mention her. So I, I would like to rectify that. And there are some stories, and people call you and remind you that you left this part out. Of course. And so, like, so I've started a, a journal with thoughts for a second book, but it's way too soon for that. I got to see if people like this one first.
1: Did you mention Pat Quit enough? <laughs> yeah, I did. And, and, and you, you know, you talked about Gary, I would suspect that uh, other than members of your family that uh, and you talked about how, how important gary was to you that pat would be the other pillar in your in your life well there's three lula
2: morello Pat when okay. gary bettman I, I i was fortunate my, my dad was my mentor I had two older brothers i idolized and still do uh but i was lucky really lucky that i came across and had to work for and work with three giants Blue when I played for in Providence College. Then I worked for Pat Quinn, and then I worked for Gary Bettman, and they're all—they all taught me so much, and I learned and benefited so much from working with those guys. Amazing. You—you did,
1: you, did, and you know what I think of Pat. I, I, my, my feelings for Pat and 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 Sandra and and the whole family are, are I think, documented. Um, but you, you, you and Pat are so cut out of the same cloth. Uh, you know, hockey player turned lawyer turned hockey guy. Um, and, you know, you weren't necessarily – neither of you were finesse players uh, when it came to – in so many ways and so many things. What was it that made it work for you two?
2: Well, I, I mean – I flat out admire and worship Pat Quinn like I wanted to be Pat Quinn like I say this in the book like well people what we just said John people say to me well you're very much like Pat Quinn that that makes my month that mm-hmm. makes my year like for someone to say you remind me of Pat like I wanted to be Pat Quinn everyone admired Pat Pat was this big handsome gruff Irishman who was brilliant and and The term he used to talk about, he stressed all the time, was being fair. He said, you have to be fair to people. He was big on fairness, like with players, as a coach. He was fair to everybody. And that's a word that gets lost right now. Like, that's a word that, I don't owe you to make you rich if you work for me, John, but I owe you to be fair to you. And Pat was big on fairness. That's the biggest lesson I got from him. He's the best listener I ever knew. He, people come in. Like, I remember Trevor Linden, went in and talked to him one time. Pat's puffing on his cigar, and Trevor's talking. And I said to Trevor, what did, what did Pat say? He said, I don't know if Pat said anything. <laughs> I, just, I just talked for a half hour. So um, I admired Pat. I, I loved how he ran the Canucks. Like When he took over the Canucks, we were playing in the old building. We were averaging like 10,000 fans. And then he they went to the finals two years after I left. And Pat just built that team, good trade after good trade, good draft after good draft. And the humility and the modesty he had while doing it, it was so much fun to w- watch him work and learn in his knee. I,
1: I, th- I don't think people understand uh, outside of – maybe outside of Vancouver and Toronto is the, the influence this guy had on the game in so many levels. I mean, remember, he, he, this was a guy that actually signed a contract to coach in Vancouver. Well he was still in Los Angeles because his contract allowed him to do so even though he got suspended twenty games for it uh but he 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 understood how to he he understood how to negotiate he understood how to use uh, the system to his advantage
2: yeah well he was pat was a really smart guy but what i like he was he was an innovator and I talk about this in the book like uh Paul, Hall or Bobby Clark will dispute this. I think we were the first team to hire a strength coach, but the Flyers claim they were, so we might've been second. We're the first team to go in a laptop, laptop computer scouting. The old days scouts filled out a, a written form and mailed it in, and then a secretary would enter it into the computer. We put scouts in the field with laptops. First team to do it, that was Pat. Um, Sleep doctors, like like I laughed when the Canucks talked about having sleep doctors. Pat had sleep doctors back in 1987. We got rid of hazing in 1987. Hazing continued in junior hockey for 20 years after that. At least. We eliminated rookie hazing in 1987. Pat was so progressive. Uh, it was just a, a, a joy to work for him. Five years, and it was like, I feel like I got the benefit of 20.
0: You know, the guys you mentioned, Lamorello, is um, an intriguing guy. Um, John and I had the great privilege of, I guess, being in the loop a little bit because he would talk to us. on. No, no,
1: we felt we were in the loop. Lou never said anything.
0: No, of course he didn't, but at least he took the call and he was gracious enough to come on and and chat. And he doesn't do that with very many. And um, I don't know how that happened, but it did. Um, Before we let you go here... And, uh, tell us a, tell us a Lou story that maybe we haven't heard. We've heard a few.
1: That's not in the book.
0: Yeah. Something maybe that's not in the book.
1: Um,
2: so I, I had, this is not in the book. It'll show you a side of Lou. So I, I dated the same girl in high school and university and she dumped me Christmas my senior year. Shocking. Dumped me. And I remember, you know, you're your kid, right? You think you're in love, but there's this devastating event, right? Oh yeah. And so, Lou calls me in, and I thought he's going to give me this. Uh, you got Can't let it affect your hockey, you know? You got to. You're the captain of this team. You and Ronnie Wilson are captains. You, you can't let it affect the team. And Lou called me and he said, "You know what?" He said, "These things are. These things suck. These affairs of the heart are are difficult." He said. You you know, just don't don't take it too hard, you'll be fine. Nothing about the team, just a, a friend saying, Hey, it stinks, getting dumped, it stinks, right? And and you start to think, this guy has a heart. Lou actually has compassion. He he is a good human being. But well, I'll never forget that. I thought this this coach is gonna give me the pep talk.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Don't let it affect your play. You know, you have a duty to this team. He called me. and said, "You know what? These kind of things are just terrible. It just sucks." And I remember thinking, "What a good guy."
0: Well, forty years later, how often do you talk to Lou?
2: Not that often. We're not. We're not. Lou's not close to anybody. No. <laughs> I, I love the guy. I owe him a ton. I really admire him. But we're, Lou is a family guy. You get a peek behind the curtain every once in a while, but we're not that close.
1: Uh, how, how long are you did do this for, Brian? How long are you going to be a broadcaster?
2: Hopefully 20 more years. I like it. I, I like it. I don't want to retire. Here's the key for me. is One is, I like the work. I'm still around hockey. I'm talking to hockey. I got a text from two players while we're talking here. Just let's get together, have a beer whatever. So I'm around the game, which I love. I love the game. It's giving me everything. Second, I feel like I, the people I work for, I enjoy, and the people I work with, I enjoy. So it, going to work's cool. Like my biggest nightmare, I said this in the book, I told my kids this, my biggest concern professionally, my entire career has been to not get a speeding ticket on the way to work. That's how anxious I was to get to work. At 5.30 in the morning in Calgary, driving down the hill, don't get a speeding ticket before you get to Starbucks. Okay. So that, that's how much I love the job. So same thing here. I really enjoy the work. I think I'm getting better at it. I'm trying to get better at it. Um, and I like it and I, I haven't made any deals with anyone. So I got people who won't talk to me right now cause I am them on the air and they don't like it. It's too bad.
0: Uh, we wish you good luck with the book book. It's called Burke's Lots. It's available at a uh, fine bookstore near you, wherever you happen to be. And, um, it's always fun to chat. It's nice to see you. It hasn't been that long since we uh, got together, but it's been a little while. It's time for another visit, Berkey. What do you think? Yep.
2: I'll call you later.
0: All right, pal. Good luck with it. And thank Thanks, you very much nice for your Thanks, time so. this morning. Uh, that's Brian Burke for John Shannon, Bob McCowan. See you next time on the podcast. Bye-bye.